Section 9 of Starlight Ranch and Other Stories of Army Life on the Frontier by Charles King. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Story 2, Well Won, or From the Plains to the Point, Chapter 7, The Rescue. All the time, traveling at rapid lope, but at the same time saving Buford's strength for sudden emergency, Ralph McRae rode warily through the night. He kept far to east of the high ridge of the Buffalo Hill. Who knew what Indian eyes might be watching there? And, mile after mile, he wound among the ravines and swales which he had learned so well in bygone days, when he little dreamed of the value that his plainscraft might be to him. For a while his heart beat like a trip-hammer. Every echo of his courser's footfall seemed to him to be the rush of coming warriors, and time and again he glanced nervously over his shoulder, dreading pursuit. But he never wavered in his gallant purpose. The long ridge was soon left to his right rear, and now he began to edge over towards the west, intending in this way to reach the road at a point where there would lie before him a fifteen-mile stretch of good going ground. Over that he meant to send Buford at full speed. Since starting he had heard no sound of the fray. The ridge and the distance had swallowed up the clamor. But he knew full well that the raiding Indians would do their utmost this night to burn the Farron Ranch and kill or capture its inmates. Every recurring thought of the peril of his beleaguered friends prompted him to spur his faithful steed, but he had been reared in the cavalry, and taught never to drive a willing horse to death. The long sweeping elastic strides with which Buford bore him over the rolling prairie served their needs far better than a mad race of a mile or two, ending in a complete breakdown, would have done. At last, gleaming in the moonlight, he sighted the hard-beaten road as it twisted and wound over the slopes, and in a few moments more rode beneath the single wire of the telegraph line, and then gave Buford a gentle touch of the steel. He had made a circuit of ten miles or more to reach this point, and was now, he judged, about seven miles below the station and five miles from Farron's ranch. He glanced over his right shoulder and anxiously searched the sky and horizon. Intervening divides shut him off from a view of the valley, but he saw that as yet no glare of flames proceeded from it. Thus far the defense has held its own, he said, hopefully to himself. Now, if Buford and I can only reach Lodgepole unmolested, there may yet be time. Ascending a gentle slope, he reined Buford down to a walk so that his pet might have a little breathing spell. As he arrived at the crest, he cast an eager glance over the next reach of prairie landscape, and then his heart seemed to leap to his throat, and a chill wave to rush through his veins. Surely he saw a horseman dart behind the low mound off to the west. This convinced him that the Indians had discovered and pursued him. After the Indian fashion, they had not come squarely along his trail, and thus driven him ahead at increased speed, but with the savage science of their warfare they were working past him, far to his right, intending to head him off. To his left front the country was clear, and he could see over it for a considerable distance. 
The road, after winding through some intermediate ravines ahead, swept around to the left. He had almost determined to leave the trail and make a bee line across country, and so to outrun the foeman to his right, when, twice or thrice, he caught the gleam of steel or silver or nickel plate beyond the low ground in the very direction in which he had thought to flee. His heart sank low now, for the sight conveyed to his mind but one idea, that the gleams were the flashing of moonbeams on the barbaric ornaments of Indians, as he had seen them flash an hour ago when the warriors raced forth into the valley of the Chug. Were the Indians ahead of him, then, and on both sides of the road? One thing he had to do, and to do instantly. Ride into the first hollow he could find, dismount, crawl to the ridge, and peer around him, study which way to ride if he should have to make a race for his own life now, and give Buford time to gather himself for the effort. The boy's brave spirit was wrought well-nigh to the limit. His eyes clouded as he thought of his father and the faithful troop, miles and miles away, and all unconscious of his deadly peril. Of his anxious and loving mother, wakeful and watching at Laramie, doubtless informed of the Indian raid by this time, powerless to help him, but praying God to watch over her boy. He looked aloft at the starry heavens, and lifted his heart in one brief prayer. God, guard and guide me. I've tried to do my duty as a soldier's son. And somehow he felt nerved and strengthened. He grasped the handle of his cavalry revolver as he guided Buford down to the right, where there seemed to be a hollow among the slopes. Just as he came trotting briskly round a little shoulder of the nearest ridge, there was a rush and patter of hoofs on the other side of it, an exclamation, half terror, half menace, a flash and a shot that whizzed far over his head. A dark, shadowy horseman went scurrying off into space as fast as a spurred and startled horse could carry him. A broad-rimmed slouch hat was blown back to him as a parting souvenir, and Ralph McRae shouted with relief and merriment as he realized that some man, a ranchman doubtless, had taken him for an Indian and had stampeded, scared out of his wits. Ralph dismounted, picked up the hat, swung himself again into saddle, and with rejoicing heart sped away again on his mission. There were still those suspicious flashes off to the east that he must dodge, and to avoid them he shaped his course well to the west. Let us turn for a moment to the camp of the cavalry down in Lodgepole Valley. We have not heard from them since early evening, when the operator announced his intention of going over to have a smoke and a chat with some of his friends on guard. Taps, the signal to extinguish lights and go to bed, had sounded early, and, so far as the operator at Lodgepole knew when he closed his instrument, the battalion had gladly obeyed the summons. It happened, however, that the colonel had been talking with one of his most trusted captains as they left the office a short time before, and the result of that brief talk was that the latter walked briskly away towards the bivouac fires of his troop and called, Sergeant Stouffer! A tall, dark-eyed, bronzed trooper quickly arose, dropped his pipe, 
and strode over to where his captain stood in the flickering light, and, saluting, stood attention and waited. "'Sergeant, let the quartermaster sergeant and six men stay here to load our baggage in the morning. Mount the rest of the troop at once, without any noise, fully equipped.' The sergeant was too old a soldier even to look surprised. At fifteen minutes, with hardly a sound of unusual preparation, fifty horsemen had led into line, had mounted, and were riding silently off northward. The colonel said to the captain, as he gave him a word of good-bye, "'I don't know that you'll find anything out of the way at all, but with such indications I believe it best to throw forward a small force to look after the Chug Valley until we come up. We'll be with you by dinner-time.' Two hours later, when the telegraph operator, breathless and excited, rushed into the colonel's tent and woke him with the news that his wire was cut up towards the chug, the colonel was devoutly thankful for the inspiration that prompted him to send K-troop forward through the darkness. He bade his adjutant, the lightweight of the officers then on duty, take his own favorite racer, Van, and speed away on the trail of K-troop, tell them that the line was cut, that there was trouble ahead, to push on lively with what force they had, and that two more companies would be hurried to their support. At midnight, K-Troop, riding easily along in the moonlight, had traveled a little over half the distance to Phillips's ranch. The lieutenant, who with two or three troopers was scouting far in advance, halted at the crest of a high ridge over which the road climbs, and dismounted his little party for a brief rest while he went up ahead to reconnoiter. Cavalrymen in the Indian country never ride into full view on top of a divide until after some one of their number has carefully looked over the ground beyond. There was nothing in sight that gave cause for long inspection, or that warranted the officer's taking out his field-glasses. He could see the line of hills back of the Chugwater Valley, and all was calm and placid. The valley itself lay some hundreds of feet below his point of observation, and, beginning far off to his left, ran northeastward until one of its branches crossed the trail along which the troop was riding. Returning to his party, the lieutenant's eye was attracted, for the fifth or sixth time since they had left Lodge Pole, by little gleams and flashes of light off in the distance, and he muttered, in a somewhat disparaging manner, to some of the members of his own troop, "'Now what the dickens can those men be carrying to make such a streak as that? One would suppose that Arizona would have taken all the nonsense out of them, but that glimmer must come from bright bits or buckles or something of the kind, for we haven't a sabre with us.' "'What makes those little flashes, Sergeant?' he asked impatiently. "'It's some of the tin canteens, sir. The cloth is all worn off a dozen of them, and when the moonlight strikes them it makes a flash almost like a mirror.' "'Indeed it does, and would betray our coming miles away of a moonlit night. We'll drop all those things at Laramie. Hello! Mount up, men, lively!' The young officer and his party suddenly sprang to saddle. A clatter of distant hoofs was heard rapidly approaching along the hard-beaten road. Nearer, nearer they came at tearing gallop. The lieutenant rode cautiously forward to where he could peer over the crest. "'Somebody riding like mad,' he muttered, hatless and demoralized. 
Who comes there? He shouted aloud. Halt, whoever you are! Pulling up a panting horse, pale, wide-eyed, almost exhausted, a young ranchman rode into the midst of the group. It was half a minute before he could speak. When at last he recovered breath, it was a marvelous tale that he told. The chugs crammed with Indians. They've killed all down at Phillips's and got all around Farron's, hundreds of them. Sergeant Wells tried to run away with Jesse, but they cut him off, and he'd have been killed and Jesse captured, but for me and Farron. We charged through em and got em back to the ranch. Then the Indians attacked us there, and there was only four of us, and someone had to cut his way out. Wells said you fellows were down at Lodgepole, but he dasn't try it. I had to. Here Pete looked important and gave his pistol belt a hitch. I must have killed six of em, he continued. Both my revolvers empty, and I dropped one of em on the trail. My hat was shot clean off my head, but they missed me, and I got through. They chased me every inch of the way up to a mile back over yonder. I shot the last one there. But how many men you got? About fifty, answered the lieutenant. We'll push ahead at once. You guide us. I ain't going ahead with no fifty. I tell you, there's a thousand Indians there. Where's the rest of the regiment? Back at Lodgepole. Go on, if you like, and tell them your story. Here's the captain now. With new and imposing additions, Pete told the story a second time. Barely waiting to hear it through, the captain's voice rang along the eager column. Forward! Trot! March! Away went the troop full tilt for the chug, while the ranchman rode rearward until he met the supporting squadron two hours behind. Ten minutes after parting with their informant, the officers of K Troop, well out in front of their men, caught sight of a daring horseman sweeping at full gallop down from some high bluffs to their left and front. "'Rides like an Indian,' said the captain, "'but no Sioux would come down on us like that, waving a hat, too.' "'By Jupiter! It's Ralph McCrae! How are you, boy? What's wrong at the chug?' Farron surrounded, and I believe Warner's killed, said Ralph breathless. Thank God you're here, so far ahead of where I expected to find you. We'll get there in time now. And he turned his panting horse and rode eagerly along by the captain's side. And you've not been chased? You've seen nobody? was the lieutenant's question. Nobody but a white man, worse scared than I was, who left his hat behind when I ran upon him a mile back here. Even in the excitement and urgent haste of the moment there went up a shout of laughter at the expense of Pete. But as they reached the next divide and got another look well to the front, the laughter gave place to the grinding of teeth and muttered malediction. A broad glare was in the northern sky, and smoke and flame were rolling up from the still-distant valley of the Chug, and now the word was, GALLOP! Fifteen minutes of hard, breathless riding followed. Horses snorted and plunged in eager race with their fellows. Officers warned even as they galloped, Steady there! Keep back! Keep your places, men! Bearded, bright-eyed troopers with teeth set hard together and straining muscles grasped their ready carbines and thrust home the grim copper cartridges. On and on, as the flaring beacon grew redder and fiercer ahead, 
on and on until they were almost at the valley's edge, and then young Ralph, out at the front with the veteran captain, panted to him in wild excitement that he strove manfully to control. Now keep well over to the left, Captain. I know the ground well. It's all open. We can sweep down from behind that ridge, and they'll never look for us or think of us till we're right among them. Hear em yell? Aye, aye, Ralph, lead the way. Ready now, men, he turned in his saddle. Not a word till I order charge. Then yell all you want to. Down into the ravine they thunder. Round the moonlit slope they sweep. Swift they gallop through the shadows of the eastward bluffs. Nearer and nearer they come, manes and tails streaming in the night wind, horses panting hard, but never flagging. Listen! Hear those shots and yells and war-hoops. Listen to the hideous crackling of the flames. Mark the vengeful triumph in those savage howls. Already the fire has leaped from the sheds to the rough shingling. The last hope of the sore besieged is gone. Then, with sudden blare of trumpet, with ringing cheer, with thundering hoof and streaming pennon, and thrilling rattle of carbine and pistol, with one magnificent triumphant burst of speed, the troop comes whirling out from the covert of the bluff and sweeps all before it down the valley. Away go Sioux and Cheyenne, away yelling shrill warning, go warrior and chief, away downstream past the stiffening form of the brave fellow they killed. Away past the station where the loopholes blaze with rifle shots and ring with exultant cheers. Away across the road and down the winding valley, and so far to the north and the sheltering arms of the reservation, and one more Indian raid is over. But at the ranch, while willing hands were dashing water on the flames, Ralph and the lieutenant sprang inside the doorway just as Farron lifted from a deep cellar-like aperture in the middle of the floor a sobbing yet wonderfully happy little maiden. She clung to him hysterically as he shook hands with one after another of the few rescuers who had time to hurry in. Wells, with bandaged head and arm, was sitting at his post, his Henry still between his knees, and he looked volumes of pride and delight into his young friend's sparkling eyes. Pete, of course, was nowhere to be seen. Jake, with a rifle bullet through his shoulder, was grinning pale gratification at the troopers who came in, and then there was a moment's silence as the captain entered. Farron stepped forward and held forth his hand. Tears were starting from his eyes. "'You've saved me and my little girl, Captain. I never can thank you enough.' "'Oh, bosh! Never mind us. Where's Ralph McCrae?' There's the boy you can thank for it all. He led us. And though hot blushes sprang to the youngster's cheeks, and he too would have disclaimed any credit for the rescue, the soldiers would not have it so. Twas Ralph who dared that night ride to bring the direful news. Twas Ralph who guided them by the shortest, quickest route, and was with the foremost in the charge. And so, a minute after, when Farron unclasped little Jessie's arms from about his own neck, he whispered in her ear, "'Twas Ralph who saved us, baby. You must thank him for me, too.' And so, just as the sun was coming up, 
the little girl with big dark eyes whom we saw sitting in the railway station at cheyenne waiting wearily and patiently for her father's coming and sobbing her relief and joy when she finally caught sight of ralph was once more nestling a tear-wet face to his and clasping him in her little arms and thanking him with all her loyal loving heart for the gallant rescue that had come to them just in time four days later there was a gathering at laramie the general had come the fifth were there in camp and a group of officers had assembled on the parade after the brief review of the command the general turned from his staff and singled out a captain of cavalry who stood close at hand mccrae i want to see that boy of yours where is he an orderly sped away to the group of spectators and returned with a silent and embarrassed youth who raised his hat respectfully but said no word the general stepped forward and held out both his hands i'm proud to shake hands with you young gentlemen i've heard all about you from the fifth you ought to go to west point and be a cavalry officer there's nothing i so much wish general stammered ralph with beaming eyes and burning cheeks then we'll telegraph his name to washington this very day gentlemen i was asked to designate some young man for west point who thoroughly deserved it and is not disappointment well won end of section nine